Welcome to Views from the Crow's Nest by Fisher Jordan, a strategic management consultancy based in New York, helping top business leaders solve complex problems through strategic insights, novel data analytics techniques, and a strong technology background. This podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, where we explore topics we see at the horizon line of the marketplace, sharing insights we've gained through our work in a variety of sectors, and covering emerging trends and topics of interest to business leaders and consumers alike. At least once a month, we're going to host a discussion on a particular emerging topic within the business world on categories that could include finance, technology, marketing, healthcare, and beyond. Today, we'd like to welcome you to our second full-length episode, which we are calling Where the Grass Isn't Always Greener, Banking Through the COVID Era. Welcome to the Crow's Nest. By now, we all know about the adverse effects of the pandemic for a number of industries and how COVID has affected the U.S. GDP. And depending on what you read or listen to, you may have also heard a lot about the Fed and various states' intervention programs implemented to help mitigate those adverse effects. We actually delved into that topic a little on our last episode here on Views from the Crow's Nest. But what we have not heard so much about yet or talked about is another side of the story that of the intermediaries between the market and the government intervention programs. At the center of the current maelstrom of the Fed regulations, pandemic effects, increased demand, loans, defaults, investors, and depositors are the banks, who've been facing the brunt of everything. And today we want to take a look at their side of the story, where unfortunately the grass is not really greener. We'll be joined for our discussion today by my friend and associate Shreya Jain over in India. Miss Jain, welcome. Hi, Nathan. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us where you're joining us from specifically? I know I got the country right, but uh, I always forget which city you live in. Yeah, so I'm from Jodhpur. It's a city in Rajasthan. And we, since we all of us are working from home these days due to the pandemic, so I'm back to my home. Gotcha. Well, we're glad that you made it safely. And I know it was uncertain there for a while, but um, glad you're doing well. Thank you. So you've been doing some pretty interesting research into this space, and I know a lot of your approach is kind of centering around this idea of a different side of the story. You know, a lot of the current coverage has to do with the consumer-facing impact of current events, and you're taking us on a bit of a different thread today. So before we dive into the details, how would you kind of summarize the material that you have for today's discussion? So we see pandemic at the center of the all of the events that are going around with bank right now. And this pandemic has lasted for about six months now. The pandemic made it difficult for the banks to actually comply with the newly made effective uh, standard called CECL. Pandemic made it difficult for the banks to have an insight into future credit losses, uh, thus making it tedious for banks to calculate the CECL driven allowances. Pandemic has also caused a huge increase in defaults and credit losses, which has been eating up the current levels of allowance for credit losses. On the other hand, the new CECL uh, standard has forced the banks to raise their allowances for credit losses, which uh, leaves less capital for regulatory requirements on the equity side. And it doesn't end here. The CECL is also acting as a component in the Fed stress test, which further leads to higher minimum regulatory capital buffers in the form of stress capital buffers for the banks. 
So all of these components together, starting from the fact increase in defaults and credit losses, the new standard called CECL, forcing the banks to increase their credit allowances, and also the fact of the Fed stress test, all of them require the banks to now raise their uh, current minimum regulatory capital buffers, which means that it could actually lead or force the banks to raise new capital or even cut dividends in future. And as the pandemic-related losses and defaults increase, it would first eat up the credit allowances and then uh, the minimum capital requirements, which could then force banks to raise new capital or cut the current levels of dividends, all of which could lead to diluting the current equity shareholders' holding values. Gotcha. Great summary. So let's start then by talking a little bit about CECL or CECL. Uh, The beginning of the year that came into effect for all banks. Could you tell us a little bit about what CECL is, first of all, but also what uh, the industry's reaction has been to it? Yeah, sure. So CECL stands for Current Expected Credit Loss. Uh, It's an accounting standard issued by Financial Accounting Standard Board, which requires a measurement model for allowance for credit losses based on the expected losses rather than incurred losses. And it also requires you to take into consideration the future macroeconomic conditions. Uh, The former standard was narrower in scope and this new standard is broader. So this one needs you to encompass allowances for held to maturity debt and those related to off balance sheet exposures. Uh, And banks are obliged to record lifetime expected losses for all loans instead of just that have incurred actual losses as of the reporting date. Uh, The new CECL standard does not prescribe any one mandatory method uh, or way for estimating the expected credit losses. So each bank would have its own credit model for delivering that transparency to the stakeholders. Uh, But however, this makes the comparison between banks really difficult. So an entity must evaluate financial assets that are all within the scope of the model on a collective or pool basis if they share similar risk characteristics. What an entity cannot do is it cannot use a default percentage to calculate general reserve for all the assets. Um, Coming to the next part of the question, which is the banking industry's reaction to it. So let me tell you that it has not been a pleasant one. Many banks are viewing it just as an accounting burden. And there are a couple of reasons for that, because for one is uh, the mark to market feature, which has not been really very practical for most of the banks, as the markets have been continuously evolving more so with the COVID. And uh, banks, banks that are dealing with industries that have high exposure uh, in their loan portfolios, for example, hotel, travel and leisure industry, Uh, they know that they are in a bad state currently, but they don't want to communicate that out loud in their earnings call because they know they will realize this loss over the next few years and not all at once. So it's calling for some unnecessary discussion during their earnings calls. And banks' frustration also arises from the fact that they are only allowed to realize the expected losses but not expected income. Another point of frustration for the banks has been that There is no minimum threshold for recognition of credit losses, meaning that entities will need to measure expected credit losses 
on all in scope assets even if there is a low risk of loss so for example uh, investment grade or held to maturity debt securities these are really low in risk levels but even then you'll have to uh, come up with your measurements for those assets as well and only in very limited instances recognizing zero credit loss is appropriate so the banks have been finding it tedious to handle this uh, overall and uh, i would say in our view that what has really gone wrong for cecil is the timing because one prerequisite for cecil is to uh, estimate expected losses under this uh, standard is to have a good insight into what's going around what what's expected in future to happen uh you have to build that insight into credit risk but with covid-19 almost everything is undetermined and cannot be predicted with uh, with a certain level of assurance so the most existing credit risk models have highly reduced relevance right now which makes it challenging for the banks to have that kind of an insight and uh, if you view it from an outsider's viewpoint i think there is some sort of risk which is still not getting accounted in cecil even after all of these regulations which is because of the fact that cecil allows you to consider prepayments it does not allow you to consider expected extensions renewals and modifications while uh, measuring your provisions for credit losses which is absolutely counterintuitive at this point because we have seen an increase in requests for extensions renewals and modifications this means that there is still some risk that is unaccounted for so obviously we're still working through the uncertainty of the pandemic um we're still facing into a lot of worsening credit risk scenarios given all those things i assume these allowances would have gone up um so what can we conclude as to what would be the effect of these higher allowances yes correct provision for credit losses has been 244% of aggregate net income which is up from 175% in quarter 1 2020 uh there's some effects of these higher allowances which i can see right now So the first obvious effect of it is the need to bolster the reserves right now which means it leaves less capital for regulatory requirements. Uh JP Morgan and Capital One have disclosed how their common equity tier 1 ratio capital ratios have been dinged by Cecil. The other impact it will have is uh because of the fact that it's getting incorporated into Fed's annual stress test and it's uh considered as a factor into it. so it will lead to a requirement for the banks to build up their capital buffers above the current norms to compensate so the banks got hit from many fronts so you just touched on this uh, just a second ago but talk a little bit more about the stress capital buffer and and what does that look like for overall reserves for the systemic banks so dot frank act stress testing is a forward looking exercise that assesses the impact on capital levels that would result from the immediate financial shocks and the scenario lasts for 9 quarters fed estimates the subject banks projected revenues and losses under these scenarios and uses a peak to throw capital depletion under the common equity tier 1 risk based measure to size each firm's stress capital buffer There were 34 participants that underwent the test, and uh, their estimated risk-based CT1 capital ratios were drawn to 9.9% from an end 2019 amount of 12%. 
and in the worst case scenario assuming a w shaped recession where the us is hammered by a second wave of the illness banks aggregate cet1 ratios are projected to plummet to 7.7% after taking 680 billion dollars of loan losses uh this has been the first time that fed has given out custom capital requirements for each bank and these are going to replace the erstwhile capital conservation buffer this new stress capital buffer will take effect from october 1 2020 Uh to give you the names of the banks that have been worst affected by it are Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley uh which have th- now a new requirement of 13.6% and 13.4% respectively. So out of all the other banks out there, why have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley been the ones ordered to hold the most capital right now? So Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have particularly high stress buffers because of the nature of the Fed's exam. which puts extra pressure on the banks that rely heavily on capital markets the other reason is also because of uh, goldman sachs decision to maintain their dividend levels uh, so both of these points have contributed to a higher stress capital buffer for these two banks to add some more details on the stress capital buffer it will actually include four quarters of planned dividends for each bank on top of the fed's model losses in effect forcing banks to commit capital against a year's worth of dividends higher dividends directly translate to higher capital requirements under the new rule and the fed has already took lot of criticism earlier in the year for not freezing banked dividends uh, early in the coronavirus crisis uh, in the first quarter the eight systemic lenders gave out about 32 billion dollars in dividends which depleted their ct1 capital ratio by around uh 4%. So the new capital reserve would consist of three components. The first is minimum capital requirement which is at 4.5%. The new stress capital buffer which could range from a minimum of 2.5% to highest for uh Deutsche Bank which is 7.8% and an additional capital surcharge for the nation's largest banks for their predominant role that they play in the whole financial system. Example JP Morgan So the Fed will calculate these buffer numbers each year after banks capital plans are submitted and would still require a firm to adjust its plan distributions if the firm's own baseline scenario results uh indicate that it will not meet its all in capital requirement which means that banks should have the capability to calculate these capital ratios and payout restrictions on a daily basis. So the firms that currently have difficulty in calculating that on a daily basis should consider that how they would demonstrate the daily compliance uh before seeking incre- incremental distributions the other thing to keep in mind uh here is that while undergoing the stress test banks have to follow standard approach to determine their capital requirements uh which has actually played in favor of most banks as recently the risk weighted assets under the advanced approach have been higher than that those under standard approach therefore benefiting the banks as lower risk weighted assets imply a higher common equity tier 1 ratio but having said that uh this high capital requirements could actually force banks to raise equity or cut dividends eventually because you have sisal on one hand which is asking you to increase your existing reserves uh you have increasing loan losses loan defaults which are eating up into your existing provisions and then you have 
these capital requirements so the loan losses after eating up into your provisions would start eating up your minimum capital requirements and hence it could force a bank to raise equity or cut dividends so you've touched a little bit on the, the topic of risk weighted assets or rwas what have been the current levels of credit rwas across different banks and and what are some factors that are driving that so there are uh, two ways in which uh, rwas can be calculated but recently the advanced approach has been at odds with standardized approach on covid shock uh, the standardized approach for capital requirement has behaved differently to the bank's advanced approach and might actually take longer for the effects of coronavirus on the economy to translate into significantly higher credit risk weighted assets lev- levels under uh, the standard approach uh most of these eight sips are currently bound by standardized approach because they are going through the stress capital buffer test therefore they may be less concerned with the current high levels of advanced approach rwas and refrain from dumping any high risk exposure assets at this point this has actually led to slightly improved ct1 ratios uh in quarter 1 2020 percentage increase in credit risk weighted assets by standard approach was 4% while it was 9% under the advanced approach so they have diverged this time and what would you say causes this sort of divergence so this divergence is caused by uh, the nature of these banks some banks which are focused on broker dealing have a greater divergence of risk weighted assets under the two approaches for example morgan stanley it had 5% under standard approach and 19% under advanced approach uh this is due to increased derivative exposures and credit spread widening that pushed the credit valuation adjustments com- component of the advanced approach while a drop in securities financing activity contained the rise of its standard rwas another example is goldman sachs which had 2% in its standard approach and about 11% in advanced approach uh and that's due to the credit risk weighted assets that linked to the derivatives increased 11% under standard approach but a huge 44% under advanced approach these discrepancies are less pronounced when you look at some of the commercially focused banks for example jp morgan and bank of america they have less divergence but overall over quarter 1 uh the credit valuation adjustments for these risk weighted assets leapt uh by 50% in aggregate at these eight us systemic banks so which approach is being used by the banks and how have the two approaches that you've talked about fared in recent years so according to colin's amendment to the dot frank act banks are required to report their regulatory capital ratios under both the approaches uh but if the standard approach gives you higher rwas than the advanced approach then banks must calculate regulatory capital ratios in refer- in reference to the standard approach uh therefore the standard rwas act as the colin's floor uh below which banks cannot reap any further regulatory capital efficiency by reducing their model rwas or by improving their models or bringing in more business activities into scope none of that is possible uh in recent years build up of credit rwas at the us banks has been faster 
under standard approach than under advanced approach with some banks actually disclosing absolutely cuts to the advanced approaches risk weighted assets as they have exited complex or capital intensive positions therefore most banks had hit uh, colin's floor but with covid-19 crisis it revealed that the advanced approach is still relevant because banks own model accounts uh have taken into consideration the deterioration of the creditworthiness of the derivatives counterparties through valuation adjustments measures which captures the threat that the trading partners will default before making good on their obligations so the fast build up of advanced approaches risk weighted assets may cause more big banks to escape colin's floor and capitalize according to their own model outputs uh this could incentivize some banks to refine their models to lower risk weighted assets eventually or even exit lending or trading relationships with customers that are capital intensive under advanced approach but this remains to be seen in future there's a case example that comes to my mind of td bank uh so let's see like i would like to share what happened by a model change at uh, td bank's us retail banks uh the arm of us retail banks so it resulted into a 12% erosion of credit risk weighted assets and hence a 12.5% of improvement of ct1 ratios because of this change in model as of july 2018 uh us retail segment represented 55% of total risk weighted assets and 30% of loans and two years since then risk weighted assets have dropped 3% while loans have increased by 23%. So in our previous episode, we talked a little bit about the Paycheck Protection Program, uh otherwise known as the PPP, and some of those other uh loan programs that are that are coming out right now. But talk a little bit more about what has kind of been a ripple effect for institutions assets with people participating in those loan programs. Yeah, it's good that you brought this up because this has actually been another front from which uh, I think banks and particularly community banks got hit. So, according to SBA, over half of the more than 5 million of total PPP loans were issued by institutions which had below 10 million dollars of assets. Uh and those institutions accounted for nearly half of the amount that was lent. So now uh the problem that these community banks are facing is that their total assets are going beyond 10 million dollars because of these PPP loans lying up in their books. And uh crossing that key threshold brings a lot of other problems like supervision by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh second is pricing limits on the de- debit interchange fees. and also the required compliance uh with the volcker rule ban on the propriety trading among various other things so now the situation is that community banks are urging congress and the regulators to exclude the ppp loans from their total asset amounts uh because of their increasing concern that participation in the pandemic relief effort will now trigger new burdensome regulations for them so yeah i mean these plans that were initially thought of creating a lot of help for the economy in whole has actually led the bank to be hit from so many different uh angles 
So this is a lot of really valuable info and uh, a great perspective on on the way this is affecting banks. What what would you say this all means for a layman? Sure. So as you know that as uh, the pandemic uh, hasn't come into control to a great extent right now. So as losses increase and uh, it would eat up the provisions for the losses first and then they will cut into capital requirements of the banks. So it could eventually lead to additional fundraising or dividend cuts. So while the deposits are mostly safe uh, for a layman, it could still lead into diluted shareholding for investors or overall lesser credit availability uh, and also reduced chances for any sort of further loan modifications or forbearances. I could also foresee it leading to higher credit cost and of course a dip in dividends. So yeah, in the current scenario, it has a lot of uh, ripple effect for even a layman because the bank is at the center of all of this and it impacts everyone. Well, Shreya, thanks again for your work on this and for uh, bringing this clarifying perspective. I know a lot of work went into uh, understanding a lot of the the more complex nuances going on, but I appreciate you uh, sharing some of those insights with us here today. Thank you so much, Nathan, for having me today. It was a good chat and uh, I hope a good learning and a good outcome for everyone. Well, that about does it for our latest episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. You can find out more about Fisher Jordan and our work helping clients exchange complexity for clarity at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. Thanks again for listening here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague. Writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners. As a reminder, you can always find and subscribe to Views from the Crow's Nest on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. And of course, you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com. Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next View from the Crow's Nest, feel free to send us an email, engage at fisherjordan.com, and we will see you from the Crow's Nest. Mm -hmm.